Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, I'd like to welcome Carol to the show. Um, Carol's an alcoholic and she's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, And we'll discuss how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. Uh, So welcome to the show, Carol. Oh, good morning. Yes, thank you. So we usually start talking about, you know, childhood and growing up and what family was like. So what was life like for you as a child? I came from... You know, way back when, I guess, I came from uh, quite a, you know, dysfunctional family, as I reflect back to that now. My father was a workaholic, and uh, he had three jobs. Um, He was a tyrant uh, sort of uh, person, and, um, yeah, I found my mother was, uh, you know, very much enmeshed in that. And back in those days, um, you know, you were sort of seen and not heard. and. I have a brother, which uh, because of this, you know, it's unfortunate, but because of this illness, uh, I haven't had contact for him, you know, with my brother for probably 18 years. Um, You know, we've both uh, gone, uh, you know, different ways. But, yeah, as growing up, I mean, uh, it was very, very difficult for me. It was very, very hard. Um, My mother sort of kept me by her side. Uh, She was quite in fear of um, her husband, my father, and, um, yeah, he would sort of come home and uh, he'd be half cut or half charged and uh, he would become, you know, very obnoxious and abusive and uh, he would throw my mother around the kitchen and throw her out through the security door and, um, yeah, he was just, uh, you know, I just see it back now, he was quite... uh, you know, affected by this disease. I mean, he wouldn't so much drink during the week, but, uh, you know, come the weekend and, um, you know, he would sort of uh, go missing or he'd come back and uh, he'd be just, uh, you know, riddled with, uh, you know, like emotions and feelings and then he would vent it out on us. And uh, I remember sitting at the kitchen table as a young girl and, you know, something didn't go according to his way and he just went berserk and started smashing the table and banging the table and throwing chairs and, um, yeah, I just sort of scurried away and, uh, yeah, my mother was always, uh, you know, petrified of my father. They unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, divorced when I was 12 and that was quite, you know, impactive on me. I couldn't understand back then why they couldn't stay together because, uh, you know, back in those days, it wasn't uh, heard of. You know, basically, your parents always stayed together regardless, you know, of what happened. But, you know, I, I just sort of, you know, remember my mother packing up the house and um, fleeing for her life, you know, and uh, we went, 
you know, we were dragged along, you know, into that. And she struggled very, very hard coping. And um, he would sort of plague us, you know, my father. He would, uh, you know, I remember we moved to St Kilda and uh, he basically would just uh, stand outside the flat, you know, for hours and hours and hours and just be watching, you know. And so she got that way that uh, she became quite, uh, you know, like a hermit. She wouldn't even go out. She was so scared and it really affected me growing up. You know, I felt like I was always running or was always scared. And, uh, yeah, I sort of found that like-minded people a bit, you know, as I started to grow up, you know, I found uh, the street life and um, just uh, found comfort, you know, in outside uh, people rather than being in the home. I was to pick up alcohol probably at the age of 13 myself. You know, it took me a long, long um, road, I guess. I drank for about 24 and a half years, but growing up it was hell on earth. You know, I could never talk about anything I was always petrified. We were always on edge. Yeah, and you know, and and sort of, I became the black sheep of the family. My brother sort of sided with my mother, and uh, they seemed to have turned on me. And uh, you know, so yeah, I couldn't wait to get away from home. What was it like at school? Was that a somewhere to go that was a bit a bit more friendly? Oh, definitely. You know, I mean, even though um, you know it was quite you know problematic for me because I. I, I couldn't really study at home. I found, uh, yeah, just people at school and teachers were more um, accepting of me and more warming and more comforting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of uh, thrived at school for a while. You know, I did I did excel and I was to get A's and B's, achieve certificates. Yeah, I just found it really, really good. So, yeah, I mean, I found uh, a friend of mine and uh, at the age of about, 14 and a half I ran away to her place and she she lived out at Black Rock and her like her family were um, alcoholics if I uh, you know reflect back on that uh, I couldn't see it at the time it just seemed like all fun and uh, even though there was a lot of domestic violence there there was a lot of beatings and you know stuff like that not to me but within her family and um but, yeah, again, you know, it was every Friday and Saturday night that, you know, everyone would just get on, you know, get on the drink and uh, it was on for young and old. It was very common back then, wasn't it? I mean, so I've spoken to a number of people who grew up in, in alcoholic homes and, you know, their, their friends' families weren't all that different necessarily to theirs. No. Yeah, but I, I just found that, uh, you know, I mean... I fitted in there like a, a hand to a glove and, uh, you know, I ran away from home and then there was a lot of trouble because my mother sought police um, involvement and uh, I became like a missing person. So I, I was hunted down and, um, well, not hunted down, but uh, they found me and uh, the police found me and dragged me back home. And then there was a sort of this toing and froing as I was growing up, like, my father lived uh, over in South Yarra and, you know, my mother had had decided to, you know, pack up and flee the situation. So they both seemed to have wanted me, but I, I felt like I, if I, you know, look at it now, like I was a pawn in their weapon because I would stay one night with my father and then, 
he he would become, you know, he would start drinking and he would become obnoxious. Yeah, and then uh, basically he would just, um, what would happen was that, yeah, I mean, one or two nights or days or whatever, he was very affectionate towards me. Um, You know, he was very kind and generous. But then, yeah, he had like, you know, the alcoholic does, they have like a a switch and then he would um, turn. And uh, so I never really felt any stability between both parents. I felt like one minute they'd want me, one minute they didn't want me. So I was sort of being, it was toing and froing. And then I was still trying to main, you know, maintain schooling. But um, yeah, I just found, uh, as it was, you know, as you mentioned, that it was just uh, more comforting and more accepting at school rather than being at home. But it did affect me because both parents would turn around and ask which one I, you know, I wanted to be with. And I was very, very confused. I did love them both in my own sort of special way. But yeah, it was, you know, it was like I had to choose which parent I wanted to be with. And overall, I chose my mother because she was the more of the, you know, the comforter and the, the more the, the one that took better care of me. You know, if I look at it now, she had all the, like, the isms. The wife of the alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, she she never drank. She never touched. Or maybe once a year she might have a shandy at Christmas or something. But, you know, it was very, very sparingly. I, I, I never really saw, a, you know, my mother, um, you know, intoxicated. But, yeah, as time progressed on, I just couldn't wait to, you know, I was starting to hit my teenage years and... um I was becoming quite wayward myself. So how did you first come across uh, alcohol? Well, I was in, I was introduced to it by my father at the age of 12 when, when I was um, staying there. He brought out a large bottle of um, Fosters and uh, I just looked at it and he said, I'll have a glass. And then I had a glass and I sort of, I wasn't over-wrapped in it, but yeah, I thought, oh, it made me feel a bit different. Yeah, I mean, I had a couple of bottles with him and, uh, you know, it seemed to lighten the mood and uh, just found, uh, you know, from that then, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, earlier, I had a girlfriend in Black Rock and, um, yeah, her family drank all the time. So, yeah, I, I used to go there to get alcohol. You know, it became that I started to, be, you know, find the addiction within me. I couldn't see it back then, but, you know, every waking moment that I ever spent there was all, it was just alcohol. So what did it make you feel like? Well, alcohol, as we know, is a um, a lubricant, I suppose, and it sort of just uh, made me, I was quite a quiet, introvert, shy person, and uh, when I put the alcohol in my system, it changed my, uh, you know, reality. It just gave, you know, it lit me up like a, I suppose, a Christmas tree. Yeah, it just did for me what uh, I, I struggled, you know, to mix in and cope. And when I had, you know, when I started drinking, I became this sort of out there in your face person, you know. I mean, I was just uh, a live wire. I mean, it was, it was just, uh, it changed my I mean, not so much change, change my, you know, perception of life, but it, I guess that I had a lot of fear from my childhood, so that 
when I found the elixir of alcohol, it sort of, I didn't have this fear. I didn't have these, you know, um, inhibitions. I, I just became, I felt like I, I became part of. I, I, I felt like I had arrived. <laughs> I suppose I had. But, yeah, I mean, the upshot of that was, yeah, there was 24 and a half years drinking. And, um, you know, I managed to get through partial schooling I'm not a, you know I'm not I'm certainly not an you know academic or anything but uh, I managed to yeah scrape through school again you know I just I found you know people that drank like I drank and I was able to get jobs you know really good jobs I remember you know getting a job in a bank you know that was probably at the age of 18 I sort of studied and uh, you know I, I was able to climb the ladder and uh yeah but again you know come friday afternoon and um i ended up by losing that job because i got so intoxicated all the staff went out for uh friday lunches or you know whatever they did the whole table was just full absolutely full of alcohol and i think i must have polished it off you know and then i started to become abusive i was just carrying on and stuff i think i blacked out yeah, come you know Monday, I was called into the manager's office, and I was told that you know my conduct of behaviour was appalling, and I best leave. And that was a continuous, um, you know, I was able to achieve good things, but um, you know along the way there was always a mix of alcohol, and it was you know the demise of me, I guess, you know, because I went on from that, and then I was to get married. Well, so we might have a break there. Are you looking after someone aged, a person with a disability, or someone with a mental illness or medical condition? As a carer, you can access free support online, over the phone, or in person. Carer Gateway is an Australian government initiative providing counselling, advice, respite, and much more. Find out how Carer Gateway can help you. Call one 800 422-737, Monday to Friday, or visit caregateway.gov.au. Carer Gateway, connecting carers to support services. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, 
or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Carol and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Carol, we're talking about you losing jobs because of of alcohol in your late teens. So did alcohol affect your relationships with people? Oh, definitely so. I was never really able to, you know, and I believe today that it's, it's part of my, you know, alcoholism and part of my addiction. Back then, I just found it hard to, uh, you know, connect with people. Uh, I mean, I had one really close friend that I probably had for many, many years, but again, you know, it was uh, all alcohol-induced. When we were sober, we didn't really seem to have anything in common. So I just, uh, I never really had any stable friendships or, you know, relationships, as sad as it sounds, because, uh, yeah, the... You know, the mix of alcohol was always in there. And, in you know, it, it, like in my mind, I wasn't really worried about having the relationship, uh, you know, with friends unless there was alcohol involved. You know, if there wasn't alcohol involved, and I believe that's part of the, um, of my, you know, illness. You know, if there wasn't, uh, you know, not that I... Uh, took drugs or anything like that you know my sorry my my problem was severe intake you know of alcohol and then from that yeah it sort of just primed me for I thought life then yeah along the way I I became like a substance abuser I would uh, like doctor shop I was coping from that I would just get uh, amphetamines not that I really became addicted to them but I found through my severe intake of alcohol, I was to get mental illness because it is a depressant. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, doctor shop, getting all types of, you know, medication. And then I was drinking with that. So, I'd, uh, you know, like it was a double whammy for me. Whatever relations I had, you know, relationships I had with people, they were only really superficial and even today, you know, many years later, I still find it very hard to connect and bond with, um, you know, other people, apart from, you know, the people that I've met and probably have, you know, have saved my life, um, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous. But way back then, yeah, it was very difficult for me to, um, you know, to really have a, a one-to-one relationship with someone or really have that firm friendship that you have when, you know, when you are growing up. So how did things change in your 20s? Did did your drinking get worse? Oh, definitely. Uh, there was, uh, there was like a window of opportunity where I met, I met a man and uh, he had a family and that was my way to get out, you know, from home and everything to get away from my mother. I couldn't, uh, and it was in another state. So he he was a drinker and so we just formed that, you know, connection and from that, yeah, I ended up by getting married to him. But I was a very determined, you know, person and uh, I did move over to Queensland from that. I was to work really, really hard in, um, 
all different types of jobs there and he was a boiler maker welder. We ended up by buying a house. It was absolutely, I mean, that was, I thought back then was the cornerstone of my life. I thought I've really achieved, um, you know, something in life. Not long after that, um, I became pregnant with, um, you know, my daughter, but I couldn't see that it was just the gateway opening up for me that um, he became quite heavy drinker. I had the full responsibility of um, maintaining the house and paying the bills and I had, well, you know, back then they were the in-laws so they would be at the house all the time and I I was getting, um, I wasn't coping so I was using more alcohol because they were drinkers too. From that, he would be bringing his mates over all the time and there'd be many times, you know, I'd get up in the morning and there'd be bodies all over the floor um, from the drink, you know, from drinking the night before. And uh, I just got to a point in time where I walked out of that marriage with, um, I think she was only a few months old and I, I just, I couldn't cope. So I was to lose that house through, I'd say no, no fault of his, but um, I, I was just, you know, starting to become really addicted to alcohol and I thought well if I get if I get out of here and return back to Victoria I can make something I can make a life for myself and my daughter I ended up going again you know I was drinking I was dragging her around everywhere through pubs clubs and dives I was really really drinking I ended up in a women's refuge from that again was to find because my mother wouldn't take me back in I came back to Victoria with the hope that my mother would uh, bring me back, you know, into the nest, but she didn't do that. And I ended up, as I said, in a women's refuge. From that was to find like-minded people like, you know, myself that drank and, um, yeah, just carried on. So I was to drag my daughter through hell hell and back. When she was growing up, I was uh, quite violent. I, I didn't hit her physically but with my mouth and um, just the way that I conducted my life I wasn't there for her um, emotionally mentally or spiritually you know I mean I was there in body to be honest I really didn't want the responsibility Um, I found I, I kept thinking you know it's a burden if I didn't have this this child I, I would be better off you know I'd be freer were you working at the time? I was working. I, I don't know how I was to hold down that job, but I, by some, you know, shake of imagination, I, I you know, I did hold, you know, hold on to that. But I, I, I would just come from, come from work, and I, I, I would just feel like so exhausted that I couldn't be bothered to pick her up from school. So I'd send her to the after-school programs. If there was any outlet whatsoever, I would put her in it so I could keep drinking. You know, I mean, I would work, but uh, I would just keep moving the post to put her, you know, because, I, I you know, I just wasn't uh, coping. What happened from that was, um, again, was to buy another house. Again, was to lose that house through um, alcoholism and my own, you know, neglecting of myself and neglecting of her. And then um, in a blackout one night, I rang her father 
I was in Victoria and he's in was in Queensland. He's still in Queensland. From that, his parents drove from Queensland down to Carlton uh, to you know to pick her up, and uh, she was removed from my care for just like well over twelve months. From that, DHS were involved. Unfortunately, I, in a blackout, she, I, I left her at. Uh, it was called back then, I don't know if it's still uh, operating, Toto's uh, Pizza. And uh, from that, like, I was in a blackout and I left her there. I forgot that I had her with me. She was actually picked up and remanded in um, a Lambie back in the day. So she became a ward of the state because I was unable to care for her. How old was she? Oh, she was only about eight. So from that, yeah, I don't think that, uh, you know, she's like a grown woman now with children of her own. And uh, But I think the impact of that on her, on, on her life was astronomical. Another time I went out, I was in the uh, Carlton Commission flats and uh, I locked her up for, you know, about two days. And I, I mean, I can't remember doing it, but that's what she's told me. So I couldn't. I didn't return back home, you know, so she was locked up in a flat for two days and had to fend for herself. There was some, you know, some horrific things that happened to her. Another time I was out and she tried to get out and her head got stuck in the door. She must have been there about three hours. She couldn't get, her body wouldn't go through, like the door was locked, but then she's tried to open it so only half of her body could get, through so she's had to lie on the floor for about three hours and I've come home with my father back then and I was really really drunk you know I I, I just didn't give a continental you know I, I, I didn't understand what I did to her even today like many many years later I've been sober just on 30 years and um, I still feel the pangs of that you know she doesn't have much to do with me these days which is understandable I mean, we are catching up at Christmas, but that will be short-lived. You know, I think there's just been so much damage. That's pretty hard to get over. But uh, is she in any fellowship herself or...? No, she's not. I mean, she has been to counselling and stuff like that, but uh, it's just too deep-seated, you know. There's just the, the wreckage of the past, you know, and uh, I think, you know, every time I come into her presence... She doesn't let me forget of the damage that I've done. You know, she says, remember, Mum, when you did this, you know, X, Y and Z. Remember, Mum, when you left me here and you done this and you done that. I think, you know, about the grounds of, you know, Al-Anon and um, not that I'm, you know, I go to, you know, Al-Anon uh, very frequently, but I, like over time I have uh, been involved in their fellowship. I'm actually involved with you know the fellowship of AA you know she just sort of says well that's good for you but uh, yeah I mean uh, you can sort of see that she's been very scarred through this things that a normal person should do she's sort of struggling to do it but she's done very well for herself and I don't take any credit for that you know she's been able to you know go back and return to she went back and returned to study and um you know, she's a very prominent person in her own right. 
And that's of no, and I can assure you, that's of no doing of mine. So what was the thing that brought you to think that you needed to get help? Well, it took a long, long time. I mean, uh, I didn't see myself that I had a problem. I just thought, yeah, possibly I drank a bit too much. But then, you know, I thought, well, that's up to me. That's my call. Yeah, what made me seek help was I was consuming, you know, so much alcohol that it took me on a spiral a long, long way down. And, um, you know, I was hospitalised over and over again. And for the life of me, I couldn't see that it was the first fatal drink. And uh, I sort of, um, I was starting to get in trouble with the law. I was also starting to uh, lose things that were really near and dear to me through my consumption of alcohol. I was having severe car accidents. I lost my licence for one, um, you know, for about four years at one stage. I've rolled cars. You know, I was a very, very reckless, you know, alcoholic and... You know, for the life of me, I, I, you know, I couldn't understand. It was, you know, much easier to look outside of myself and blame them, those and they. I'd front up constantly um, to doctors and psychiatrists and anyone that would uh, hear my woes, you know. You know, they'd tell me exactly what I needed to to hear and then um, I'd be off, off and running again, you know. I'd uh, pick up you know, alcohol, and I'd think, well, it wasn't that bad, or I'd try and count my drinks, and, um, you know, it just never, ever worked, because I am an alcoholic, and I can't drink in safety. So, yeah, I just think it was only when the illness of, you know, alcoholism impacted on me was the only time that I stopped drinking. Apart from then, I couldn't do it, you know, I had to seek help, and it was through a rehabilitation centre that I was brought to the rooms of, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was down at Fitzroy. I came in with a blanket around me. I was extremely ill, you know. And, you know, for the life of me, I just, uh, I took to it like a duck takes to water. You know, they used to say, do 90 meetings in 90 days. And in the beginning, I didn't want to do it. But then I thought, if I don't do this, you know, I'm going to die. So I knew, you know, that these people weren't, um, you know, fabricating, you know, their life stories. I knew from examples of people that I'd seen along the way that, you know, that it did work, that it does work. And, um, yeah, I, I just slotted into it. Okay. Well, listen, we might take another short break there. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic 
with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Thoughts within Visions I see Daring to dream My destiny This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Carol and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So before the break, we were talking about coming into AA. So what was it like to come into your first meeting and to hear other alcoholics talking about things that you felt? When I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was very, very daunting. It was very, very scary for me. You know, I'd see people stand up from the floor and, you know, they they seemed to be relatively honest and, um, you know, they gave me a glimpse of hope. You know, I thought, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. But in the very beginning... Um, I was just sort of beside myself. I mean, I would sit down and um, I would listen and I would listen with, you know, intent of how they were able to reconstruct their lives and what sort of lives they had in the past through drinking. And then I also saw, the more I came back to the meetings, I also saw, unfortunately, people that um, did pick up and unfortunately go back out and that really scared me too because they'd, they seemed, um, you know, to have their life together and then, you know, something would come from left field or some trial or tribulation would happen and they would just go back out. And um, I, I remember, uh, you know, back in the early days, I remember a lady that I got close to and... Um, I don't think she would mind me mentioning her name. Her name was uh, Maureen and um, she had nine years up and I used to look to her like she was a goddess because I was only just um, like a new kid on the block back then. And um, she, you know, she took me to her home and she took me under her wing and, um, you know, I spent some really, really quality time with her. And unfortunately, she went back out and she picked up and she died. And that just like blew my socks off. I just couldn't, um, you know, fathom it out. I thought, well, these people are right. You know, if you do pick up a drink and you've been exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't listen and you return back to type and go back out, this is what can happen. And this was to happen over and over again for me. And that's why I think even today, you know, even though 
I've got the runs on the board, I guess. I'm never immune, I'm never safe, you know. If I don't do what this program suggests each and every day, I know without a shadow of a doubt I can still return back to type. So what me, you know, kept me coming back was, you know, the life-saving stories that, you know, they used to say you're eligible to. It was just the people that got me, you know. They used to say, you know, you know, no matter what happens, don't pick up that first fatal drink. No matter what happens, just keep coming back. That's what I've done, you know. I mean, it hasn't always been easy. Life isn't kind. I've had some really, really tough times within my own recovery, within my own life. But um, I don't need that, uh, you know, elixir of alcohol. I just don't need it. I see it as lethal poison, you know. I believe today strongly in God. And yet when the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have choked on the fact. You know, they used to say things like, you know, put the serenity prayer in and um, reach out to people. And that's what I've endeavoured to do one day at a time. I don't know where life's gone, but it's gone. And um, I'm very grateful to AA today to know what I am. You know, I don't have to hunt around and try and search through what the answers are to life. All the answers are for me are in the rooms of AA. So how did it help you understanding that alcoholism was an illness? Well, the way I understood it as an illness is that when I take one drink, it sets off an allergy and a compulsion where I have to drink it out regardless of all the good intentions, of all the good promises, of all the things that I want to happen in life. If I pick up one drink, I can't stop. And that's how, you know, how it is for me. Um, I understand it's an illness because even though you don't drink, it's still progressing. It's still active, you know, within my body, but I don't choose to activate it. You know, my illness today is dormant. If I put alcohol in my system, it will activate it or set off a chain reaction and I'm gone, you know. I believe it. You know, I mean, I read a few articles, you know, on it and, um, you know, I know that it's a thinking disease. It stems, you know, within your mind. Um, they used to say, in the, you know, in the rehab that it was uh, THC, you know, that uh, is a, a part in the brain that we we can't process alcohol like other normal people. That's how I see it. You know, I just know that, for me, I, I can't drink. I don't analyse it. I try and utilise it. I try and understand, well, if one has diabetes or cancer and they went to the doctor to get the cure, you know, that's what we have to do for AA. The medicine we get is through our ears and the medicine for me is in the rooms of AA. It's through the people that show me, even after many years of being around, that it is an illness. It's a diabolical illness. It's a, they say it over and over again. It's insidious, cunning, baffling and powerful. So how did that change your life, stopping drinking alcohol? Well, how has it changed my life? Um, well, my life today is dramatically changed. I mean, even friends that I have today say that I have changed. I'm not the person that came through the doors. I mean, uh, it's changed because I guess that... Um, I am accountable, I am responsible, 
I know I have the illness. I know I have the disease of alcoholism, so I have to do the work to stay clean and sober. And that's what I try and, you know, maintain each and every day. You know, I do journal writing. Um, I have a gratitude list. I pray today. I hand over. I accept life the way it is rather than trying to, you know, manipulate situations or trying to, you know, get my own way. You know, I'm no Rhodes Scholar, but, you know, I do the best I can, you know, you, you know, with what I have. I'm still a sick unit trying to recover. So it takes a long, long time. You know, one doesn't know, you know, you think it's all happy, joyous and free when you're drinking, but they don't understand, you know, the one doesn't understand, I believe, the ramifications of continuing drinking, especially, you know, for young people. They think it's it's all good, but, you know, if I had have been um, informed, I guess, uh, years before that, I potentially was an alcoholic. I don't know whether I, I would have stayed on the path or got off it, but, you know, I took the road because that's how, how I guess it was mapped out for me or that's the road that I charted to take. I, I don't know whether, you know, life would have been, in, you know, any different or if I would have been, in, you know, any different. But, um, you know, it is what it is and I am an alcoholic and I will be until the day I die. So how's it changed your relationships with, you know, your family? Well, to be honest, I don't know if it's really changed much at all. I mean, uh, as I've sort of mentioned about my daughter, I mean, you know, unless she's able to get herself to a 12-step program and, uh, you know, understand about what this is about, there's not much that I can do. So I guess... Even after many years of being in recovery, my family is still, you know, disgruntled. It's still, um, it takes years, you know, to put it back together. And I can't do this alone because I believe, you know, it's a family illness. And, you know, I can't do much about them. All I can do is safeguard myself. I have one son at the moment um, who's in the grips of this, you know, illness. and. Uh, for the life of me, you know, I, I, I try to be supportive, but there's not much that I can do unless he wants to help himself. So has it changed your sort of view of your father, you know, seeing him as an alcoholic who couldn't stop? Well, that's sort of a tough question. Um, I guess it has in some respect because I thought, I think to myself, well, I've followed exactly the same road that he's followed in some in some areas so I guess yeah even though my father is now deceased and has been since for a number of years now I can truly understand what he uh, what he went through and um, I don't so much blame him no I've, I've learned to um, come to terms with it and I've learned to I suppose forgive but it takes a long time so what about your ex-husband? Um, well, I have no contact with him now. He still, I believe, is still a practising um, alcoholic, has been his whole life. He was to remarry, but he's still continuing on with, um, you know, his um, alcoholism, I guess, or his drinking. And, 
I'm in one state and he's in, you know, in another. My daughter has contact with him. She seems to favour her father over me, even though I am a sober, you know, recovering uh, alcoholic. She seems to favour her father. So there's not much I, I can do about that. As they say, you know, you just got to let go and let God. And um, I went back many years later and made an amends to him and said that I was sorry for my part. And I was sorry that, um, you know, I took my daughter away from him when that was a crucial part of of her years. So, yeah, I mean, on that side of the slate, I guess so that I've made an amends. So how did your work life change once you got sober? Well, I became much better. I became, you know, a worker instead of just... Uh, Back in the day when I was just uh, working to fuel my addiction of, you know, alcohol, I guess, I couldn't wait to get out of the premises and I'd be watching the clock to get down to the hotel. So when I got sober, I, I would do a full day's work and I felt more part of, even though, you know, I've had, uh, you know, over time, I guess I had problems within... Um, the working area, but I worked really hard to become a worker. You know what I mean? I sort of, uh, I enjoyed getting up in the morning and, you know, putting, like having a shower and putting on fresh clothes and presenting myself and going to work. And then when I received my, my pay, I felt like, well, I've worked hard for that. So what's life like in AA for you today? Do you get involved in service and sponsorship? I do. Over time, yeah, I've been a, a GSR, I've been a delegate, I've been a secretary, I've been a treasurer numerous times. I try to reach out to the sick and suffering, you know, alcoholic if they if they want, you know, want this. But mainly, um, you know, I have to do it for myself. But um, I, over, you know, over time I have sponsored women and some have been successful and some haven't. And I always try and be available if I'm asked to do service, like, you know, sharing today. But, yeah, I mean, uh, at my home group and stuff like that, I've, you know, I try to pitch in and be um, a greeter or just be, you know, just be there. Yeah. So what's it like, you know, seeing young women like, you know, like you were come in to AA today with problems? Do you get, is it a bit of deja vu? Well, to be honest, I haven't really seen too many in, in the shape that I came in. Some of them, to me, come in with silver spoons in their mouth. And I'm not being judgmental, but I don't think that they've, you know, I mean, I arrived at a low boat, you know, low bottom, you know, alcoholic. And I didn't set out in life to be like that. I had a reasonable education and, um, Sort of, I felt that I aspired to life, but yeah, some women I see today, um, I think you know, some have. I, I sort of look at them and talk to them sometimes, or not so much because we've only got the Zoom now. But I think, well, they've got as good as chance as what I've had, you know. And I try be encouraging and um, just share my experience, strength, and hope. But you know, they think, well, if she went through that. And she survived it, surely I can. 
So talking about Zoom then and, and the coronavirus restrictions on meetings and stuff, how different ha- have the meetings been electronically? At first I found it quite, you know, difficult because I'm not really, a, a, you know, a computer-minded person, but, you know, I was able to work it out and get myself onto Zoom. I think it's very beneficial. I do prefer face-to-face meetings, but, yeah, I mean, it saves you sort of zipping here and zipping there and going all over the place when you've got it right in your lounge room. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a difficult time, as we know, for everyone, this COVID virus, but just being, um, you know, connected to other people and being, you know, being able to listen to them and hear their experience, strength and hope, it's very encouraging. So what about newcomers? Have you had many newcomers to your um, Zoom meetings? There have been, yes, yes. And again, you know, I just try and, I mean, we're only like powers of example. So, yeah, I mean, I just, again, just try and be, um, you know, receptive to them and just, you know, listen with um, intent and just, try and be encouraging. I mean, you can't really do much with Zoom, but, yeah, hopefully, you know, when this all passes and we get back to the way things were, that, um, again, you know, I'll be there for the, you know, the newcomer. If you'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can find them on 1300 or you can go online at aa.org.au for more information and details about local meetings and contacts. Um, That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Carol for sharing her recovery experience with us and talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped her. Thank you, Carol. All right. Thank you. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. And to take us out, we've got Wildflowers by Natalie Napoleon, again, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.